Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Today I'll begin what I plan to be a two-part series uh, that I'll conclude next week, Lord willing, on the doctrine of Christian freedom or Christian liberty. I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians in the evenings. And so we've come to chapter 8, and this is an important topic for the church, for the health of the church, for a healthy Christian life. And so we thought it would be prudent for me to swap to Sunday morning so that the whole church might be reminded and hear more about the doctrine of Christian liberty. Christian freedom is a crucial doctrine, and it's one that's often debated because as we can boil the question down to some simple questions, you'll see. Without a clear understanding of Christian liberty, you won't know what sin is. Or we could flip the coin the other side and say, you won't know what righteousness looks like. And in some areas, those questions are very easy. Can I murder my neighbor? Well, of course not. Can I steal from him? Well, surely no. But in other areas, it might not be so easy to determine what would be right and what would be wrong. And that's why we need to have a clear doctrine of Christian liberty, because without it, we may unnecessarily constrict or constrain people's real freedom in Christ. We don't want to bind consciences like the Pharisees did, because Jesus reserved his harshest words for those legalistic Pharisees. But we also don't want people running off in the other direction either, engaging in sinful behavior because of a sub-biblical understanding of freedom in Christ. Being free in Christ never means being free to sin. And so where do we find that balance of genuine freedom in Jesus Christ combined with prudent restraint against sinful things? How do we avoid the pitfalls of legalism on the one side or sinful license on the other? Well, Paul helps us answer these questions and he provides for us principles that will help us navigate the discussion. Today we'll look at the controlling principle in these discussions, and that is love. Now let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter, it's not long. But today we'll largely stay in the first three verses. 1 Corinthians 8, hear the word of our Lord for us today. Now concerning food offered to idols, we all know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, through who, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
food will not commend us to God. For we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to take this text, which seems somewhat foreign to us, and to unfold the truth there within, that we might rightly see more of Christ, see more of His work, see more of His ministry to us, and by seeing that and loving that, that we would be made more like Christ in all that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll notice in these first three verses today three things. We're first going to look at a pagan practice, and then a problematic principle, and then the proper principle. A pagan practice, a problematic principle, and a proper principle. Let's begin by looking at verse 1 again and noting the pagan practice. Reminding ourselves of this original context in Paul's debate will help us better clarify the principles that Paul uses in his rebuttal. Now, I doubt many of us have had a debate or a discussion this week regarding whether or not we're going to eat the meat that's been sacrificed at our local temple. It's not a debate that we typically have. However, by digging into the historical moment, we can see what it's really about, and that will better enable us to take this debate and apply principles from it to our ethical issues today. Paul begins this chapter by turning his attention to a question that the Corinthian believers had written to him about in a previous letter. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 7, you'll see that explicitly when he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... And he goes on in chapter 7 to discuss marriage and singleness and sexuality. And now in chapter 8, he's addressing questions they had about meat sacrificed to idols. If you had been a citizen raised in Corinth, you knew immediately what Paul was talking about. The Corinthians were part of a polytheistic society. They had gods for everything. Little g, gods. If you were traveling and you wanted protection, there was a God for that. If you wanted a good harvest, there was a God for that. If you wanted a military victory or economic prosperity or fertility or healing, God's for all of those. But not only were there many gods, they believed that the whole world was full of spirits. We might even say demons. The water, the air, the woods, the sky, even food, even meat potentially full of spirits, many of which could do you harm. Thus, by giving sacrifices to the appropriate gods, you were not only seeking the favor and blessing of that God, you were also seeking to rid yourself and your food of this spiritual demonic presence or activity. They believed that by burning 
a meat sacrifice to a god, you would shoo away the wicked spirit that was attached to that meat and thus prevent the demon from entering inside of you when you ate the meat. Meat sacrifices were a big deal. And on top of all of that, there were the economic dynamics at play. The meat sacrificed to idols was tied to these economic connections. The sacrifices brought to the pagan temples would be used to compensate the priests. It would be used to help fund the government. The government got its share even then. And the rest of the meat would then be sold to local markets. The Corinthians would be largely limited in their grocery shopping to meat that was somehow not connected to pagan ceremonies. It would be like you going to the butcher shop at your grocery store and seeing all the rows of meat, the chicken, the beef, the steak, all of it, and knowing that every single piece there had already been blessed by a Hindu priest and sacrificed to Buddha or Vishnu or somebody sacrificed it to Allah. That's, that would be your circumstance. It would be nearly impossible for some believers in Corinth who had contact with Gentiles to avoid facing the question, will you or will you not eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan idol? If a relative was getting married, if somebody was having a birthday party, if somebody was coming of age, all of these occasions would be accompanied by a feast which almost certainly had meat sacrificed to a pagan god. And so these questions were real. They were pressing Some of the Gentile believers probably refused to partake of the meat that had been brought and laid in front of them because it brought them back to old memories of their pagan lives, of their wicked worship that they used to give to these false gods. Or maybe they were afraid that their still pagan family members would see them eating the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol and think that they had abandoned their new faith in Christ. Other believers were less conscience-bound. To them, meat was just meat. They knew that meat was not magically made evil because it had been burned in some pagan temple. They knew that pagan gods didn't exist anyway. And they remembered Jesus' teaching that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth. And so they were freely partaking without any hindrance. And there comes the rub. We have many things in Scripture that are clear. Many things that are black and white. We have many things, for example, clearly prohibited. Murder, it's wrong. Adultery, it's out. Lying, theft, pride, all wrong. We have other things clearly labeled as proper. Gentleness, kindness, patience, self-control. Against such things there is no law, Paul says. But what about everything in between? What about all the gray? What about all the things that the Bible doesn't explicitly address, like meat sacrificed to idols? That's where the Corinthians were battling. And honestly, that's where most of the strife in Christian churches comes from. It's usually not the black and white areas. It's usually the gray. How do you react when somebody makes a decision not a matter of moral right and wrong, but a decision that we don't like about where they live or where they go to work or what they wear. How about this? Can a Christian celebrate Halloween or not? 
What counts as modest clothing? Or immodest clothing? Who am I allowed to vote for? What kinds of activities are permissible on the Lord's Day? The Christian Sabbath. And what kinds aren't? What kinds of movies or music or books can a Christian take in? Or how about this one, to make it really live? What about masks and vaccines? I don't read about those in the Bible, so does that mean they're problematic or we're totally free? Now we're seeing how a strange passage about meat sacrificed to a pagan Corinthian temple is relevant to us today. Now we see that this passage is really important. So now that we've noted the context, let's keep moving. Let's note how Paul begins to address the problem. That's our second point. We'll see a problematic principle. A problematic principle. Paul says, the end of verse 1, we know that all of us possess knowledge. My translation has that end phrase in quotation marks. That's put there, those quotation marks are put there by the translators, and they indicate that this was probably some sort of slogan. Perhaps Paul was quoting back to the Corinthians something that they had said in a previous letter, or maybe it was just a common phrase of the day. Either way, it seems that the stronger or the more mature believers, the more enlightened believers in Corinth, were using this phrase in a way that was unhelpful and unloving. They were saying, as we read further down in the chapter, now we all know that idols are nothing, and we all know that there is no God but one. Now these mature believers did have an accurate depiction of reality. They were technically accurate. But their accuracy wasn't the problem. If we keep reading in verse 1, Paul says this knowledge again in quotes in my translation, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This knowledge that they have, this knowledge is leading them to the wrong place. It's leading them to the place of arrogance. It's leading them to unloving behavior, to harming their weaker brothers and sisters, as we see later in the chapter. Now, let's, let's think about this knowledge for a minute, and then we'll come back to the love. Paul is not here saying that knowledge is not needed or that it necessarily, that all knowledge necessarily produces arrogance. Paul is not against knowledge. In fact, his entire letter and the whole of his theology and ministry presuppose that knowledge is necessary for a godly life and for salvation. Paul's statement in Verse 2, that if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That phrase should not be taken to mean that if you learn something, you automatically become less learned somehow. Some people get hung up on this verse in a way that pushes towards a self-defeating, even nihilistic understanding of knowledge and learning. They, that they can't ever actually know anything at all. And if that's the case... If it's true that we can't ever actually know anything, then we need to just pack it up and go home. Preaching is useless 
The Bible is useless. Schools are useless. Learning is an entirely futile exercise if knowledge is meaningless like this. But this is, that's nonsense. It, he clearly doesn't mean that. Because he says ten times in this letter, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 6.19 Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 6.2 And if you know it, it should make a difference. And so he's not saying that knowing is wrong. He's saying that there's, there's a kind of knowledge that's an imaginary knowledge. It's not real knowledge. You say, well, how do we know what that is? How do we know that there's wrong kinds of knowing? Well, one answer is if you're puffed up by it, you don't know it. You know, but you don't really know. Your knowing is defective. Your knowing's broken. And so to summarize Paul's theology of knowledge here, we might say that we have two different kinds of knowledge, two different kinds of knowing, and each brings a different result. Or to borrow another biblical phrase, you can know your knowledge by its fruits. The quality or more precisely, the legitimacy of your knowledge is seen in what it produces. Wisdom is known by her children, and so is foolishness. False or incomplete knowledge puffs you up. It makes you proud. It makes you less loving of others. And we've all met this kind of person. He is always right. And he's quick to make sure that everybody knows he's always right. He's never met a debate on which he doesn't have an opinion. He doesn't have a debate that he can't win. He's, in fact, impatient with everyone else that he works with because he clearly sees all of the problems and he clearly has all of the solution. And he doesn't understand why everybody else won't just do what he says. Your world would be perfect if you just bow to my wishes. He's never open to reason because why should he be? There's never the possibility of him ever being wrong. Have you ever met this kind of person? They're quite unpleasant to be around. They like to blow up churches, actually. They bring division where they go. But if we're honest... We all have a little bit of that left in us. We all have our opinions, which isn't wrong, necessarily. We all think that we're right, otherwise we wouldn't hold to those opinions, right? But when we meet with someone that disagrees with us in some gray area, about meat, sacrifice to idols, about any other area of Christian liberty, we don't always and instinctually respond in love, do we? Sometimes we get wrapped up in the debate. Certain personalities are really tempted to this. They like thinking hard. They like logic and rigor. And they get excited about a debate. And so we jump into it and our passions. And we forget that it's a person that we're talking to. We forget what Paul says. That the aim of our charge is love. Not dominating arguments. This kind of pride 
produced by a flawed knowledge is dangerous. It deceives us into thinking that we are always right. And that people would have all of their problems solved if they just did what I said. This knowledge is divisive. It, it harms churches. It, it, it splits families. It, it, it repels. It's repulsive. It drives people away. But it doesn't just do that. The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud. That means that this kind of knowledge doesn't merely produce relational problems here on earth. It makes God my enemy. Divine opposition comes to the prideful. And that's what each of us is born with. God is our enemy because we are proud. Scripture says we are born separated from God, alienated from Him, foreigners to His household, fugitives of His holy law that will surely come under His just wrath for our unloving pride and our flawed knowledge. But Scripture doesn't just stop there. We can praise God that He is not prideful like we are. God doesn't browbeat us with all of His knowledge. God isn't a God who speaks to us in condescending arrogance and shames us because of our ignorance. Rather, God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. Even though His knowledge is infinitely beyond anything we could ever grasp, God speaks to us and uses His knowledge to edify, to build up, and to love. With knowledge, He spoke and created the universe. And He created a people who could experience His universe and His love. When Adam and Eve violated God's law in the garden, God spoke a word of grace and promise, which offered that they would again taste of His loving presence. When Israel sinned again and again and again against God, He didn't crush them in His wrath. He continually pointed back to His loving promises. And when the fullness of time came, God spoke finally through His Son, the very Word of God, who came down to us and loved us in the exact way we needed. This Holy Son possessed the perfect knowledge of God and yet was never proud. He lovingly instructed His people, correcting them when necessary, but always working for their good because He loved them. His love for them was so complete that He was willing to give up all of His liberties for the sake of His weaker brother, me and you. See, He's the ultimate stronger brother, the more mature brother. He had perfect and complete knowledge and total freedom. And yet He willingly gave up His rights and preferences and died on the cross for a prideful, weaker brother like me and you. He laid down His life in humility in order to save arrogant fools like us. He loved the unlovely and provided a way for them to be forgiven. Do you know this gospel? Do you know this Jesus? More directly, have you trusted in this Christ? Have you been forgiven of your pride, of your using your knowledge to judge and demean others, to treat others as ignorant fools, rather than using your knowledge to love and to edify? 
If you haven't trusted in Christ, then know today that you are still bearing the full opposition of God. He opposes you. He remains your enemy until you submit to Him as Lord. And if you remain in your prideful opposition to Him, you will have Him as your judge and be under His everlasting opposition. But if you see your sin and rest in Jesus as the only Savior, the only way to be made right with God, you too can be forgiven of your boasting. You can be remade into a new creature, a person reborn, being remolded into the image of Christ, taken from pride and brought to humility, taken from hateful arrogance and into loving meekness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust in Christ and only then can you know. Only then can you really know. And only then can you love. That's the only solution to the flawed Corinthian principle which pridefully says we all have knowledge. Paul says, no, we don't all know. But if that flawed principle is producing pride, let's move on to reflect on the proper principle. That's our third point, the proper principle. If the flawed principle is that we all know, but this knowledge puffs up, then the proper principle, we might say, is this. True knowledge is circumscribed by love. True knowledge is circumscribed by love. That's how we might Summarize what Paul is saying when he says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The mature Christian had knowledge. They knew what was going on. They knew that meat doesn't defile man and that abstaining from meat doesn't save a man. They knew that idols were nothing, but the problem is what they were doing with their knowledge. They were using their knowledge, their Christian freedom, as a weapon to harm their weaker brothers and sisters. Rather than using their freedom as a tool of love for the building up of the body of Christ, they were flaunting their rights, and in doing so, they had neither love nor real knowledge. That's what verse 2 says. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. If he, if he thinks he's really smart, he's got nothing. If someone boasts in their doctrinal learning, they're demonstrating they don't have a clue. That's the wonderful irony of the Christian life, and I'm sure we've all seen it. Some people have a head full of biblical, doctrinal, historical knowledge, but they don't know the first thing about loving others, and so their knowledge is useless. And it means that the most immature unlearned, the weakest baby in the faith has more real knowledge than guys with PhDs in Greek and Hebrew that don't know how to love. I don't want to get too far ahead, but we all know that 1 Corinthians 13 is up there. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have all the prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and have all knowledge, there's that word again, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. 
I'm nothing, Paul says. You think you're really something. That you're the mature one who has his doctrine all figured out. That you're the one who knows what real Christian liberty is. And we all know it's not sinful to engage in this or that. And you want to teach everybody that. That's wonderful and fine. But if your knowledge of doctrine doesn't make you love your weaker brother, you're useless. In fact, you're worse than useless, Paul would say. You're annoying. You're an irritating gong. All of your pontificating about it's my right to do this and we all know it's not sinful to engage in that. All of that talk is hateful garbage if it doesn't help you love others and edify the saints. That's what Paul's saying. Paul would have us all to know this. Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. And if he's known by God, then he, you will love God's people. Let me ask us a question, kind of a diagnostic question. You want to test your knowledge. You want to find out how mature you are in the Christian life. Then answer this question. How do I react when my freedom is hindered by an immature believer? How do I react when my freedom is impeded by someone else less mature, less knowledgeable, perhaps younger in the faith. How do I feel when I can't do what I think is fun, when I can't do what I want to do because somebody else has wound up just a little too tight? Young ladies, here's this particular question. I saw a lot of heads pop up right then. How do I react when I can't wear the clothes I want to wear because of somebody else's conscience? How do I feel when I can't drink because somebody else might stumble? When I can't dance, when I can't go on the date, when I can't go to the party, when I can't watch the movie, when I can't whatever it is, fill in the blank. Think about the thing that you don't think is sinful, that you would like to engage in, but somebody else is impeding you. That's the real test of mature love because if we're honest, our first reaction this is especially true. We are, we are hyper-individualistic Americans. Our first reaction is to demand my rights. Don't tread on me. My freedom. Don't come in here with your legalism, your legalistic demands. I'm a Christian. I can eat meat. That's what the Corinthians were saying. I'm free to engage. Don't you dare bind my conscience with all of your ignorant knowledge. If you could just reach my maturity, my doctrinal knowledge, then you would see that it's okay for me to partake. I'm not going to subject myself to the weakest brother around me because then I'd be a slave to others. I'd be a slave to the most immature. I'd be a slave to the least learned among us. Have you felt that? You felt that pull? And when I think like that, I can begin to begrudge the weaker brother. To hold them in contempt because they're constraining my freedom and my fun. Or I begin to see them not as a person, a brother and sister in Christ who I want to love well. I see them as my own personal doctrinal construction project. 
Or if I could just debate them enough. If I could intellectually weary them into submission and and through my argumentation, then I could have my freedom back. I'm not concerned with loving them. I'm concerned with my freedom and my preferences and my comfort and my fun. It's a very me-centered view of Christian freedom. It's not true freedom, actually. This person is making sure that they're never a slave to anyone else's conscience. I am so thankful that Christ did not act that way. I am willing to hate my brothers and sisters rather than be enslaved to their conscience and to their weaknesses. But you know what the Scripture says? Christ willingly became a slave for us. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. If you want to turn over to Philippians 2 real quick, you'll see a well-known passage. And this, I trust, will be helpful because this passage addresses several of the things that we've been looking at today. Pride versus humility. Loving subjection versus hateful domination. Limiting personal freedom for the sake of love. Philippians 2 Look at verse 3 where Paul begins with the ethical and moves from there to the theological rationale. He starts with don't be prideful and then explains how Christ shows us what that looks like. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. That means they're more important, I'm, I'm less important. That's the framework of humility. Verse 4, look each of you, let each of you look not only to his own interests, we might could say there, don't look after your own freedoms, but also the interests or freedoms of others. Verse 5, have this mind, there's knowledge again, there's that word, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, that slave, doulos, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross." Christ's freedom, his right, was to remain as, in his station as Lord over all things. But because of his love for his people and his love for his Father, he gave up his station as Lord in heaven, and he came down and emptied himself. He stripped himself of his status, and he willingly took on the form of a slave. Christ is our example in this. His love for others led him to willingly constrain his freedom and enslave himself. Another passage, Hebrews 12, says, For the joy set before him, he willingly endured the cross. His love drove him to joyfully submit and willingly endure. That's a high standard. Do I joyfully limit my freedom out of love for others? Am I willing to quickly and joyfully forsake my freedom so that others might be loved well by my abstaining? These are tough questions. None of us is perfect at this. 
We have all flaunted our freedoms. We have all acted without regard for our weaker brothers and sisters. We've all justified the exercise of our freedom without first considering how others might be impacted by it. In short, we have all behaved selfishly, divisively. We've sinned. We've sinned against our brothers and we've sinned against Christ Himself. That's what 1 Corinthians 8.12 said, By sinning against our weaker brothers, we sin against Christ Himself. It is no slight sin for you to thoughtlessly engage in something without first considering the effects of it on the body, on our brothers and sisters. It is no trivial matter. You are sinning against the Son of God Himself. I can't help but imagine when Paul wrote this, he's thinking back to the Damascus Road. Saul is persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, and Jesus blinds them with a light and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We're acting like Saul, sinning against Christ. But we're not left without hope. Christ was perfect, even though we all so often fall short. Christ was loving, even when we were hateful and selfish and inconsiderate, and we can be known and loved by God, not on the basis of our perfect obedience, but on the basis of Christ's death and His resurrection in our place. If we are trusting in Christ, we stand forgiven. That's the good news. We have been made right. We have been adopted into God's family. We've been given all of the promises of God, all of the promises which are more than enough to sustain us, even when we might be called to give up our freedoms here for the sake of loving our weaker brother. And when we so model Christ, we honor His sacrifice, we love our brother, we demonstrate that our knowledge is genuine, and we'll see that often our demanded rights were not quite as important as we thought they were. Not when compared to the value of loving our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And that's where we're going to conclude our service this morning. By reflecting again upon the death of Christ. Christ's body and His blood are represented in His table. The bread and the cup show us again the gospel. His broken body and His shed blood are reminders of His atoning work. He was willing to constrain His freedom to the point of death that we might be granted freedom to live. He was willing to become a slave so that we might be set free. He was willing to die to self in order that we might have sin put to death in us and instead lead a life of spirit-filled love towards others. This table, the Lord's table, is for any believing among us. If you're like the saints in Acts 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word, devoted to the breaking of bread and to fellowship and to prayer, then we invite you to partake with us. But if you have not yet trusted in Christ, or if you're out of fellowship with a body of believers, then let these plates pass. In a moment, our table servants will come You get your cups and hold on to them and we will take together at the end. I'll pray and then our servants will come. Father in heaven, we thank you 
that merely by faith we can be forgiven. We can be made right. We can be made humble. We can be made not those that were opposed to you, but those that are loved by you. Help us to love our brothers and sisters well, and by doing so, love Christ well. Please bless these elements and use them to build up your church in love. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.